Outdoor Explorer, and I'm your host, Martha Rosenstein. On today's show, I'm speaking with several guests about climate change and its impact on the sports and recreational activities that so many of us love. My guests today are Tim Hinterberger, Toby Schroer, Rosie Brennan, and Dave Atchison. Tim is a volunteer with the Citizens Climate Lobby. Toby is an accomplished cross-country skier and a research assistant at the International Arctic Research Center. Rosie is a two-time Olympic cross-country skier, and Dave is an author, hunter, and sport fisher. We cover how the climate in Alaska is changing, what these changes mean for all Alaskans, and what we as individuals can do to help combat climate change. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. My guest for this segment is Tim Hinterberger. Tim is a volunteer with the Anchorage chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby, as well as a professor with the Whammy Medical Program at UAA, where he teaches anatomy and neuroscience. And he has a research program in molecular embryology. He also serves on the board of the Alaska Public Health Association. Welcome to Outdoor Explorer, Tim. Thank you, happy to be here. So I read in your bio on the Public Health Association website that your current research interest is in climate change communication. And I think that makes sense for someone who teaches neuroscience and is interested in climate change. Um, Just kind of to talk about how we communicate about that. But can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby and what drove you to become active in speaking and researching our perceptions of climate change? Yeah, well, you know, like probably a lot of people, for years I had assumed that that someone else was doing something about climate change. And it's like most people who are alarmed, I didn't know what I could do individually that would that would really make a difference. You know, we can all change our light bulbs out to LEDs and uh, drive our cars less, but of course, to shift our economy completely off of fossil fuels, it's going to take big policy changes. And so one day I read about Citizens Climate Lobby and the specific policies that it promotes that would have the effect of rapidly eliminating greenhouse gas emissions. And I decided to get active through Citizens Climate Lobby. And I've really found that uh, connecting with other people who share the same goals makes all the difference in in being active and feeling like you're part of the change. Can you talk about some of the most pressing climate issues that you think Alaska faces? Oh gosh, where to start? You know, I mean, we've all heard of uh, coastal erosion due to the loss of sea ice and we've read about and maybe experienced increased in wildfires. Uh, We've uh, read about changes to marine ecosystems and permafrost. And I mean, really, you know, the the latest national climate assessment document has a whole chapter devoted to changes just in Alaska. And so when you read about that stuff or hear about it, a a lot of it feels impersonal, like permafrost and, you know, it affects somebody else, but me. But when when people who love being in the outdoors are, are no longer able to ski, you know, when and where they used to, or um, if there are no more fish in the streams where you like to go because the water is too warm, then then it becomes more personal. And Alaskans spend more time in the outdoors than than people in much of the rest of the country. And so my my goal here, thinking about this program, is that I, I want to use that sense of connection to the outdoors to motivate people to take action on the climate. 
So um, when we hear from the other guests, you know, my hope is that this show will, will serve as an introduction to the many ways that the climate crisis is diminishing or at least altering the ways we can enjoy Alaska outdoors, um, especially for listeners who haven't ever thought about it from that angle before. And I wanna emphasize that there are ways that folks can take action toward uh, stopping further greenhouse gas emissions and, and especially to connect people's love of the outdoors with their motivation to be part of the solution by taking those actions. I wanna use Alaskans identities as outdoor enthusiasts to fire up their link from awareness to action. Yeah, I read um, I, in in researching for this show. I was just doing some reading, and the in the information that I found was pretty staggering. Even just specifically related to um, outdoor economics, like not even the economics of you know our natural resources, but outdoor recreation spending in this state is pretty significant for the population that we have. Uh, the statistics that I found were from the UAA Center for Economic Development. I think the data is from 2019. Um, and it said that $3.2 billion annually can be contributed or can be directly attributed to outdoor recreation and that it's created over 50,000 jobs, both directly and indirectly. So outdoor recreation is clearly huge in this state. Um and not, you know, the impact of climate change, like you said, impacts our enjoyment of these outdoor activities. And it's probably not something that we think about often while we are participating in them because we're just, we're out enjoying them and we don't think about the greater impact. But also the economics of that is really interesting and something that I don't think people think about. So what are some of the economic impacts of climate change that we, for this state, that we may not be acutely aware of? It's even related to the outdoor industry. Yeah, sure. I mean, the outdoor industry and and, and uh, the tourism industry um, more broadly uh, or overlapping that will be is being affected. And if is the if we ignore the climate crisis and don't do anything about it, those those economic impacts will just increase. But you know, the, I think the the way that I think about economic impacts. I'm, there will be big economic impacts on the state in all kinds of ways, whether we ignore the climate crisis or whether we take action to control it. And, but what we can do a lot to control whether those economic impacts lead to a better economic for, uh, future for the state or not. If, if we invest in the changes that are needed to switch our state's economy away from fossil fuels to clean energy, we'll come out as a state much further ahead than if we keep trying to do business as usual for as long as possible. I mean, what's the, what's the saying? Never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> the worst, biggest, worst economic impact will come if we do nothing. And I think even, you know, thinking about you know, some of the more rural communities and their reliance, the economics of their reliance on fossil fuels is pretty fascinating too, right? Like gas costs twice as much in, in the rural communities as it does in, in a community like Anchorage or Fairbanks. And that, that has an impact on their economics, especially when the changing climate is changing the way that they hunt and fish for food and the, the permafrost is affecting the plants that they need to survive. Like it's, 
it's kind of a vicious cycle. Yep. Yeah. The, the economic impacts and the personal impacts are just <clears throat> going to become more and more apparent. Yeah. It, sometimes when I think about these issues, it seems, as I said, overwhelming, especially in the context of trying to make better choices um, on a small scale, you know, recycling, shopping from a place that is active in helping to fix climate change. Um, there's places that have, you know, when you go to their website, they say this purchase is, you know, we offset carbon, the carbon footprint of this purchase, you know, making those choices sometimes feels, it, it feels stressful, but also it feels like, am I, am I doing any good? So what can we as individuals do to help combat some of these issues? Right. Well, individual choices and decisions that we make as consumers definitely make a difference. And some of them uh, make a much more difference than others. You know, we're, we're going to hear more and more in coming years about the need to switch everything that we own from cars to appliances and uh, home heating systems, switch them from fossil fuels to electric. And that's something really important to keep in mind. Um, even now, when our uh, electricity is still mostly generated from fossil gas, electric is more efficient than combustion. And of course, going electric prepares us for the, the day when our uh, power grid is all um, switched over to uh, zero carbon sources. And, and there are lots of other small changes that we can make in our lives as well that have uh, some of them have bigger impact than others, like um, having a meat-free diet or, or less meat in your diet, and um, thinking about our transportation choices. But you know, beyond those individual uh, steps, consumer actions, what, what everyone can do and what everyone needs to do is to use their voices. And I mean, talk to other people whenever you can. Let them know that you're concerned about the climate crisis and let them know what you're doing as a, as a consumer. And also really importantly, raise your voices to lawmakers and tell them to keep climate at the fore. Vote for candidates who are serious about enacting policies that will uh, eliminate greenhouse gas emissions uh, across the economy as rapidly as possible. And, and take time to learn about those, those policies yourself. And as I said earlier, Join up with other folks who are concerned in groups like Citizens Climate Lobby or so many environmental groups. It, um, it makes taking action easier and, and more fun. Definitely easier with friends. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I wanna also emphasize that. So there's, there's a lot we can each do getting back to um, the kinds of actions we should take. Um, and you know, um, uh, a lot of people think that it's you know too late to do anything or that our actions uh, won't make a difference at this point. And it's true that as a country, we have put off doing what we should have started doing a few decades ago when we really first learned uh, the magnitude of the problem. Um, and it's true, it's, it's going to be harder and involve a lot more um, turmoil in our economy than it would have if we had started eliminating emissions earlier but we still need to do it. Every fraction of a degree of warming that we can avoid um, is a win. Uh, I think we need to remember to you know, keep our eyes on the prize, changing all of our energy and uh, transportation and food systems and industries uh, in ways that will end emissions will be a huge challenge. But once we do it, we'll have a, 
a more stable climate and a healthier environment, <clears throat> uh, healthier air, everything for generations to come. And a lot of people feel, well, you know, I don't want to sacrifice the lifestyle. I don't want to sacrifice driving and eating what I like. But remember, we don't have to give up the lifestyles we've gotten used to. We just need to find new ways of doing things, new, new technologies. And many of the technologies that we need already exist. And putting the right economic policies in place will accelerate the development of new technologies. So, you know, what we need more than anything else right now is the political will to take action, uh, both on the part of citizens and lawmakers. And it's the job of citizens to help lawmakers find their political will. Yeah, I think you make some great points there. Um, speaking more to something else you mentioned earlier, which was honoring our love for the outdoors and our, our desire to recreate in the outdoors um, and tying that into using that as motivation to, to fight for this. Um, I read an article fairly recently about how, um, about hunting and climate change and how hunters are actually some of the most avid conservationists, which wasn't yeah. something that I ever, I mean, I never considered that, but it makes perfect sense because you want to conserve something that you love participating in. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that there's a way to apply this idea of saving the thing you love to other outdoor activities. So what can we do as people who love recreating in the outdoors and, and want to continue to do that? How can we honor that as well as, and use that as motivation to take action against climate change? Oh yeah. I mean, I would say that taking action against the climate crisis is the best way to honor our love of the outdoors and outdoor recreation. So, you know, we can, we can train ourselves to make a connection, an explicit connection between outdoor activities and political action. Every time you go skiing or fishing or hiking or hunting or, or snow machining, while you're doing that, remember when you get home to take some small step, either at the consumer level or, or by contacting your member of Congress. Every time you're enjoying the, the Great Alaska Outdoors, think, to yourself, I need to protect this for myself and for, for those yet to come. And I think this conversation is kind of especially important right now because not only because this is becoming a bigger problem, but also the number of people that, of new people that started participating in outdoor activities with the pandemic in 2020 has increased the amount of impact on the resources that we love. The, I've seen countless photos of, you know, overflowing trash cans and things like that, that, that come with people who are new to recreating in the outdoors and increased traffic. So I feel like this conversation is also particularly uh, pertinent at this, at this time. Yep. Yep. I think so. I mean, we have more and more people uh, in the outdoors um, taking advantage of it and, and loving it. And we have more and more people concerned about the climate crisis. And so we, if we can just link those two those two thoughts and get people to take action as a result. That's, that's the goal. Well, Tim, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Um, we have some other great guests lined up for this show, um, which I think it'll be interesting to hear their perspective on all of this. Um, I will put a link to the citizens climate lobby, the Anchorage chapter, the Facebook page on um, the notes for this episode. So those can be found at alaskapublic.org um, for anybody who wants to learn more about that. Um, and thanks again for being here. Thank you, thanks for doing this. 
So my next guest is Rosie Brennan. Rosie is a cross-country skier and a two-time Olympian. She was born in Park City, Utah, but found her way to Alaska to pursue her Olympic ski racing dreams. She's an ambassador for Fast and Female, Skiku, and Healthy Futures, all of which are nonprofit organizations that work to bring sports to Alaskans. Welcome to Outdoor Explorer, Rosie. Hi, thanks for having me. So this week, our show is focusing on climate change in Alaska, and I really wanted to have Rosie on because I think the impact of climate change on winter sports in Alaska is one of the easiest changes to see and something that we can all feel because most of us participate in winter sports. Um, But before we dive into that topic, can you just talk a little bit about how you came to be an Olympic cross-country skier? Yeah, Um, I, uh, like you said, I grew up in Utah and Um, that's much more alpine centric community. So I grew up mostly alpine skiing. Uh, however, I wasn't very interested in racing. So when I was like, uh, when I was right around 14, I didn't really have much going on. And so, um, but a lot of energy. So my mom really pushed me to find something to do. Uh, and I eventually gave in to try cross country skiing and it was a great fit for me. Um, so that was, that was my journey into cross country skiing. Um, and that, yeah, that definitely changed the rest of my life. Uh, and I, uh, after I graduated high school, I went on to ski for Dartmouth College for four years before then moving to Anchorage in 2011 to be part of the APU Nordic Ski Center and um, train with the with the crew here. And so, yeah, here I am still doing it. And were you like when you started skiing when you were 14 cross country skiing, were you like, I want to go to the Olympics or is that something that sort of developed over time? Um, well, you know, I guess I was maybe backwards, which maybe is how kids are, but I decided I was going to the Olympics actually, um, in 1996. So I was like eight then, I guess, (laughs) um, when I watched the 96 games in Atlanta, I decided I needed to go then, but I didn't know what sport. So I found the sports second. So maybe not the the best trajectory, but maybe that's how kids work. (laughs) I I mean, you know, you just, you try things until you find something that you're good at. Right. And And then you, you, and then you go like that's (laughs) when I was little, I thought I was going to be, I wanted to, I, I don't have any real Olympic dreams or I never really did, but I always talked about going to the Olympics for um, Nordic combined. Cause when I was a kid, Ooh. there was no women Nordic well, combined. Still not. Yeah. So, so I was like, I'm going to be the first woman to compete in Nordic combined, yeah. but that didn't happen, obviously. <laughs> um, so I actually, in doing some research for this show, I actually just read that the average ski season has decreased by about 34 days since the 1980s, which maybe uh, this winter in Alaska is not the greatest time to be talking about decreasing winter because we have some insane snowpack and this this is, it, it's strange to talk about that right now. Um, but in your years as a skier, especially those that you've spent up here in Alaska, how do you feel like the changing climate has impact skiing and your ski season? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a pretty good descriptor. Like it's really put a lot of pressure on the length of the winter, I think, um, more than anything. And you definitely notice winter shortening just about everywhere we go. And so, you know, that becomes challenging because, you know, we have this race calendar that we've done for decades and decades god knows how long and um now suddenly you know the first races of the year are always in question and now we will only race at venues that have snowmaking capabilities and um you know all these things become yeah there it's just more complicated trying to figure out how to how to lengthen the ski season that 
doesn't want to be lengthened. <laughs> what have, have you noticed anything about your, like, has it impacted any of your training here? I, I don't know how much time you spend in, um, the Anchorage area or in Alaska mm-hmm. training, but I would imagine at least your summers are here for the most part. Um, has, has this like unreliable winter weather changed the way that you prepare for ski season? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably actually what impacts me the most because I am gone all winter. Um, you know, I leave in like mid November. So like, uh, you know, in a dream world, I'm on snow from mid October for a month before I leave. And so then I'm like, you know, as prepared as I can be once I get to Europe to start racing. And so that's, that month has become the month that's like really unreliable. Um, and so we don't really know when we're going to get on snow. And, um, I mean, NSAA has snowmaking now, but um, it has to be cold enough to blow snow. <laughs> um, so, you know, all these things become, yeah, way more difficult. Um, and it certainly, yeah, definitely makes tra- training more complicated and especially planning for training, but also, yeah, I mean, the more snow you, the more time you spend on snow, the better prepared you are. So. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing that we don't think about as, you know, more as those of us who are recreational athletes don't think about as much as somebody who is, it is their job to be an athlete is, how, especially a winter athlete is how some of the things that happen during the summertime, like longer wild, more, you know, more intense and longer wildfire season, how that impacts your ability to train as well. Right. Cause you're yeah. have fewer days that you can maybe spend outside depending on where you are. And it can damage the infrastructure as the, there's that resort in Tahoe that had right. complete, you know, destruction from a wildfire. So that how does that impact you? Or have you noticed anything like that changing the way that you operate during the summer months? Yeah. Um, wildfire smoke has been a a huge thing, honestly. Um, you know, and I grew up in the West and in Utah. And so like fires were definitely things I was aware of, but I never had to change my training in my whole time growing up there. Like there was, yeah, we, I mean, we were fortunate to never have a fire right near us. Um, but we weren't getting smoke from California, like the way they are now. Um, and so the first time I really experienced wildfires was actually up here. Gosh, what year? I don't even know what year that was now. Um, but the Kenai fires. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and <laughs> it was kind of funny because we started training in N95s, which then became normal in 2020 again. <laughs> but anyway, we were really cutting edge then <laughs> training in our N95 masks um, because of the smoke. Uh, and so that was like my first kind of learning process of, of, um, figuring out, you know, like how bad those particles are for our lungs, how damaging it can be. Um, and you know, how potentially that could have a really negative impact on my ability to compete. Um, and since then it's been just a continual issue. Um, this year, the Olympics was, we're at altitude. And so, uh, a big goal of mine was to spend time training at altitude. And so I was going, I was trying to go back to Utah a fair amount and, um, yeah, I, I went down one week or I went down for a camp in August and I spent the entire week training inside and then bailed because I just couldn't <laughs> do it anymore. But yeah, and it was like that for months and months and months. So, uh, I mean, that is a huge issue and you know, that doesn't just affect winter sport athletes that affects just someone who wants to get outside and have some exercise, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's massive. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, and it affects you know, summer athletes, same deal, you know, that, that it affects their competition season, probably mm-hmm. more, more so than it affects your directly affects your competition season. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I read several articles again, while I was preparing for this, uh, show and 
it kind of talked about, you know, some of the places that have had to cancel or relocate races. There was a ski race, like a community ski race in Montana that's been, that was canceled this year for the first time in 32 years. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, you only go to places that are able to make snow, um, mm-hmm. which is a great solution, but comes at, you know, a cost, it's an mm-hmm. increased cost probably for you to travel and to have to relocate, you know, if you had a plan to go somewhere, um, and it's not necessarily feasible for all places, you know, to have snowmaking capabilities. Um, you just came back from the Olympics where you skied entirely on man-made snow. Mm-hmm. Does that, do you, does that man-made snow, do you feel like that's as good as not man-made snow? Does that, does that change the way you train or race? Um, for sure. I mean, yeah, man-made snow doesn't compare to real snow. I don't think, I mean, maybe there's some people that prefer man-made snow, but to me, natural snow is, is just really hard to beat. Um, it tends to be really firm and, and icier. Um, and you know, that's another interesting impact that we see is like, um, you know, all these courses that were designed for natural snow and now they're on man-made snow and we're having like way higher cases of like kind of extreme injuries, um, for cross-country skiing. Um, yeah these courses weren't designed to be skied on in these types of conditions. Um, so that's kind of a weird secondary impact, but, um, for me, snowmaking is, I mean, yeah, it's great to be able to like, know you can host a race, but, um, like you said, there's a cost to it. There's a cost for the organizers. There's also, you know, a cost in terms of greenhouse gases, like you, the snow guns have to run off something. Um, so we're just like, in a lot of ways, exacerbating the problem, you know, it's like a negative feedback cycle. And, and I think for me, the, the biggest challenge is that, um, you know, I see, of course, my job is a cross country skier, but for me, the bigger picture is like part of my job is to motivate people, to inspire people to get outside, to like inspire people to like take on a challenge they didn't think they could take on, um, you know, all these, all these kinds of things. Um, you know, that's a big part of how I define what my role is. Uh, and if people can't easily get outside to try skiing, like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the question I have. And, and skiing has like had such a massive impact on my life and made it, it so much better and, and has made me grow as a person um, in so many ways that I never would have anticipated. And, you know, I, one of the reasons I work with all the nonprofits you listed is because I want every kid to have that opportunity to experience the same thing I did, but if they don't have snow to ski on, then like, they're not going to. Um, and so that, that's the part that, that I like struggle to grapple with. Um, and I think man-made snow, while it like does maybe provide a lot of opportunity in that sense, it's not really the experience of like walking out your door and putting on skis, which is how I think skiing should be. And I think that's, you know, like that's how people want it to be. And so it's definitely this kind of like double-edged sword. Um, and yeah, it certainly changes how we race and, um, you know, waxing and the skis you use and all those other variables, um, for sure. But yeah, it's, it's a sad second <laughs> to real snow, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned something that, you know, kind of vicious cycle of those things come at an increased cost. It, you know, thinking about, um, how you guys have to maybe travel farther or travel more because where mm-hmm. you're going is not, didn't have the conditions that you thought, you know, some of that is like, it's a, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to reconcile. And I think this yeah. is where we, as, as athletes especially, but, you know, we start to feel a little hopeless in this, in this, that we can do anything, you know, that our individual actions do anything. Um, and I know, I know that a lot of ski organizations and a lot of people in the ski industry have really started to 
bring awareness to this issue and made some changes. Um, there was a, I just read an article about a race that basically like, was it one of the, it was the, one of the races in Vermont had, they were like touting that they had for this whole weekend of a race, they had one bag of garbage. They had like really like cut down on the -hmm. amount of garbage that they had. And they were, they had a chart where they had all of the participants like put tallies next to the things that they were doing to kind of show that everybody's collective actions are making a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, what sort of thing, and I would imagine that as you're skiing loops on icy man-made snow, that this is a topic that probably feels really like in your face, right? Cause you're not, mm-hmm. you're just, you're skiing with green grass next to you. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. What sort of things do you think that we as individuals can do to help protect winter so we can keep skiing out our back doors? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a great question. And I mean, I think there's so many different you know, lifestyle aspects that we can all just be a little more aware of. But honestly, I think the single greatest thing that any person can do is to vote um, and to vote for the people that care for the environment. Um, And, you know, that I think, I believe that that can be like in both parties or all parties. Um, But like taking the time to figure out who has the priorities to care for, for the place we live, um, I think is the single greatest thing that any human could do. (laughs) So that's always kind of like, yeah, and it, because it is really hard not to live some contradictions in your life, you know, like I fly on a plane to Europe to go race and here I am talking about climate change. Like I, I get the, the, how ironic that can sound. Um, and I'm very aware of that. And that's something that, you know, is hard to grapple with. And so I think I try to use, you know, what voice I have, um, to encourage people to think about who the, who their elected officials are and who they can, um, count on that will vote for the environment to make those, uh, kind of bigger changes that will impact a greater number of people and ha- and therefore have a greater impact uh, on the environment surrounding us and in our community. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's where I stand. And, you know, I do think the the small actions of, you know, only having one bag of trash for your races, honestly, that's amazing. I love hearing that. Um, and that's, you know, another thing, like, aside from taking the personal actions, like, I, I like to think that us as an athlete community can also um, appeal to like our governing bodies, uh, to do things like that, to try to reduce waste at races, to try to, um, make the schedules geographically oriented. So we're not flying as much and, you know, like these types of things to like minimize where we can. Um, but yeah, definitely go vote. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that we all, we need to, you know, our collective actions, we need to remember that even though we're taking individual action, it's a collection of individuals taking action. And that does add up kind of like exactly like voting, right? Like Mm -hmm. our individual Mm -hmm. vote doesn't always feel like it means much, but as a whole, it does mean something. I also think that um, I know there's a lot of companies out there that are actively um, saying that like every purchase that you make, you know, they, they do carbon offsets. I'm not, I think that's what they call it. Um, and I, and I think those kinds of things are becoming more front and center of people's marketing. And I, so that's something that like, I certainly try to look for. I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily changing my habits to shop at these places, but when I see these places, I'm more likely to give them my money because I, I like to travel. I'm not traveling for my job, but I, you know, I feel like there's, I have to do something to offset that impact, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of the same, the same as, having to get on an airplane to go find snow to do your job. Right. Um, All right. Well, thanks so much, Rosie, for being here to talk about this with me. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you. 
You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. For this segment of Outdoor Explorer, I am joined by Toby Schroer. Toby is an accomplished cross-country skier. He was UAA's first All-American skier, and in 2002, he became the first male Division II athlete to earn the running skiing All-American in the same year. He's an economist and a research assistant professor at UAF's International Arctic Research Center. Welcome to Outdoor Explorer, Toby. Thanks for having me. Sure. Can you just talk a little bit about what the International Arctic Research Center is and what you do there? Yeah, the International Arctic Research Center um, is a is a is a research center at uh, UAF that's focused on on climate research, uh, the uh, effects on the on the environment of a changing climate, but also in a more interdisciplinary sense. Um, the effects on our uh, human society and how, how, how and how we deal with those uh, increased risks related to climate change is basically part of what I'm trying to focus on, uh, among other things at, at IARC, which we call the International Arctic uh, Re- Research Center. You um, mentioned before we started recording um, that you're a climate refugee. Uh, can you Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I actually grew up in Germany, and I uh, remember when I was around um, a teenager in the 1980s, uh, winters there in the early 1980s were really still winters. I could ski from my mom and dad's uh, house out of the backyard, basically, uh, every day, and the winter lasted from December to March uh, on a really consistent basis. But in the late 1980s, it really changed and uh, it was a dramatic shortening of the season and much warmer. And I could no longer ski out of the backyard and had to drive every time to go to go Nordic skiing. And, uh, and Alaska for me was always uh, still a, a destination where you could ski almost all year long if you wanted to. And you still can that if you really seek it out. Uh, and and this, the the snow quality and the quality of the of the trails, the Nordic trails that we have, especially in Anchorage, is just phenomenal. It's world class. And uh, I realized that early on when I came here in 2000, starting um, my undergraduate degree at UAA in economics and environmental environmental studies. What are some of the um, projects that you're working on right now with the IARC? Yeah, so uh, I have one interesting project that relates to certainly some of the policy issues related to fisheries in Alaska, and it deals with uh, commercial salmon fisheries in a changing ocean environment. And it looks at not only the biophysical changes that we'll, we'll potentially uh, going to see in our salmon, we, uh, we got a handle at that through some laboratory experiments where we found that salmon are potentially uh, really hard hit by uh, ocean acidification, kind of the future oceans, the future ocean we would see in, say, in the next uh, 50, 60 years, if we keep on 
on this trajectory of carbon uh, carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions in, in general, and um, how ocean acidification may may affect uh, our fisheries, and how we can until we really see intensified ocean acidification, which we see already in the Arctic. The Arctic Ocean is the number one place, the, the number one place in the world where you have the most rapid ocean acidification occurring. So we're again at the forefront of climate change in that sense in Alaska. And our research is focusing on how we can adapt to these changing ocean conditions, not only increasing temperatures of the water, but also increasing acidification and other issues um, like increasing algae growth, in increasing uh, harmful algal blooms. And uh, this, this is not only affecting commercial fisheries, but also subsistence and sports fisheries, obviously. So um, a broad spectrum of the population, not only the Alaskans, but also visitors and others who benefit and have you know, commercial salmon permits are owned across the country. So it's gonna affect a lot of people, not just Alaskans. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I think of, I think I mentioned this already, when I think about climate change as a whole, I see a big vicious cycle and it can be really overwhelming to think about how we as individuals matter in helping to solve this problem. Certainly, you know, researchers and people who have large amounts of money to donate to organizations, um, those, those things feel very tangible, but what can we as individuals who love to be in the outdoors do to help combat climate change? Yeah, I think the number one thing is, um, is to be aware of our own behavior, uh, and, uh, and create choices for people to do the right thing to reduce their, their carbon emissions. People's got to have people got to have choices to reduce carbon emissions. You can't just say reduce your carbon emissions if you don't give them any tools or any knowledge of how to do it. Um, one thing that's the most efficient, uh, and we've, we've known this for decades and decades, but it hasn't come to any, to any uh, real action on this, but now we're really running out of time. Uh, the latest, uh, if I can just chime into, into this latest news, the international, Panel on Climate Change just submitted their mitigation plan. And uh, if we want to keep the uh, global temperature increase since the Industrial Revolutions to uh, a maximum of 1.5 degrees C, we really need to peak our carbon emissions three years from now. That's three, just three years from now in 2025. So in order to do that, um, <laughs> It's just it's just a second to uh, noon, and so the time's up. If we don't take action now, we uh, are going to see much more devastating, uh, catastrophic events uh, related to climate change. Not just the natural catastrophes that we have seen so far that are increasingly linked to climate change, and the science showing that, uh, but it will it will get much worse from there. But the number one tool that we have is real uh, the market. And this is where the beauty of economics really comes in. If carbon emissions or carbon in general has a price, then uh, the market can create uh, the incentives for people to do the right thing. And so that's a beautiful mechanism that we haven't really taken advantage of. It's a simple solution. And if it's global, everybody 
is in the <laughs> is 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 making the right choices based on the price signals. That's how uh, humans uh, humans respond to price signals. And so instead of reminding everybody to do the right thing, like I tell my neighbors, why don't you want to put on some solar panels on your roof or want to you know buy an electric car or maybe sell your car and take public transportation. Uh, put off your flight to Hawaii, uh, don't buy, buy any plastics, uh, you know, just try to reduce your carbon. Um, you know, you don't, you don't need to do that. Once you have a price for carbon, you got the incentives to really have the market respond to it in the right way, have people behave the right way, and uh, there's no big discussion. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a big discussion because people don't want to pay it, right. but, um, but if you have a price for carbon, pretty soon you'll realize that your energy costs will come down because your utility, in this case, let's say we're in Anchorage and it's Chugach Electric, uh, if they have to internalize their, their carbon price, it will increase the cost of creating uh, electricity through uh, natural gas, and it will much more decrease uh, the electricity produced through renewable energy. And so it will just incentivize them to put more renewable energy, more technology, more storage of renewable energy onto the grid, and our, uh, and our energy costs will come down. And this is especially now a very timely conversation because we're talking of highly inflationary times. And if we can just reduce our energy consumption and our energy costs, uh, it will really pay off in your pocketbook. And I think the incentives are more and more there, but we got to get there to get a, a price for carbon to really signal to people what to do about the climate crisis. And that's the number one tool we have and the most efficient one. And um, yeah, we're, we're all hoping it's eventually gonna lead to that. And I think, I think this is an interesting tangent to loosely related to the pandemic where we got so stuck in, this is how we, we do things this way because this is how we always have done them. And the pandemic really shook that up and we had to think about new ways to work, new ways to do all kinds of things. And I feel like it's kind of the same, some of what you're talking about with with energy and and power companies and all of that is similar you know they continue to do things that way because that's just how they've always done it and they're you know it changes hard so it's i'm hopeful that we will see things change but change changes hard and sometimes it takes something catastrophic to bring that change about unfortunately and what it also does, I mean, I, and I, I, I didn't mention this, it's not only the consumer end, but also the producer end. So right. the, uh, once you have a price for carbon, the uh, companies, industry will really respond to that because they will have an incentive to really go after low carbon or no carbon technologies. They'll have an incentive to develop technologies that are innovative enough to, and we need this in the, in the future, not just net zero, which means no carbon emitting, but we need to go beyond that. We need to actually remove carbon from the ocean and the atmosphere. And uh, in fact, NOAA is talking about this right now and other federal agencies to, uh, we, we are uh, preparing or gearing up uh, to get the technology to remove carbon from the ocean and, and from the atmosphere. And that's what we need to do. We need to go to net zero and beyond uh, in order to really uh, bring down the trajectory we were on. 
Well, uh, Toby, thank you for being here and having this conversation with me. Um, I will make sure to put a link to the IARC in the notes for this episode if anybody wants to check out and see what you guys are doing there. Um, it'll be on the Outdoor Explorer page at alaskapublic.org. So thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. My next guest on Outdoor Explorer is Dave Atchison. Dave is an author, a sport fisher, and a hunter. He has written books including National Geographic's Hidden Alaska, Bristol Bay, and Beyond, and his guidebook, Fishing Alaska's Kenai Peninsula, as well as Dead Reckoning, Navigating a Life on the Last Frontier about his days as a commercial fisherman. He's worked for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, as well as a variety of conservation organizations. He is the past president of the Renewable Resources Foundation and works with the Trout Unlimited Alaska Project. Welcome to Outdoor Explorer, Dave. Thanks. Thanks, Martha. Uh, glad to be here. So today's show is all about climate change and its impact on Alaska, specifically how it affects people who recreate in the outdoors, which is honestly most of us who live here. Um, would you tell us about how you became interested in conservation and working with organizations like the Renewable Resources Foundation and Trout Unlimited? Well, I've always been interested in like preserving the outdoors. To me, there's a connection beyond myself. Um, you know, maybe people, that's why they go to church. That's why I go out to the river or to the mountains or any place. So it's very important to me to preserve that and to have future generations. I really want them to have what I've had. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a big part of it. I think there's like kind of a generation, generational perspective that, that I worry about. You know, I take students out, you know, who are new to Alaska and they're like, oh, this is amazing. This is amazing. And I'm like, well, you should have seen it 20 years ago. So there's a generational perspective of what nature is. And it changes and you know we're here for a brief time so we don't necessarily see those changes so at, I, I want you know kids and future generations to be able to go out and and have what i had yeah and even I mean, even for me i am probably at least one generation behind you um you know, I, I grew up here, so I definitely remember how things were when I was a kid, you know, just even as simple as when, when winter starts and ends. Sure. You know, that, and, and the warming cycles, those are all changed drastically in my lifetime. Yep, yep. And like king salmon fishing, you know, I haven't king salmon fished in seven or eight years, but, you know, the old days weren't that long ago. Right. They were, you know, 12, 15 years ago were the good days for king salmon fishing. So a lot of us have seen that change too. Um, one of the other guests on the show that I spoke with, he said that he got interested in this because he always considered it somebody else's problem and then realized that that somebody else was now him, which I think is interesting too. You know, like, especially for me as a kid, you know, you hear about these things and you, you hear about, you know, growing up and, and changing things. And then one day that person is you, you're the one that has to do the things to make the change. Yep, and I think I've noticed a lot of friends of mine who are older than me who were, you know, maybe didn't see that and they've kind of like, they laughed like, oh, I'm becoming this environmentalist and a greenie, whatever that is, you know, and I'm like, well, good for you. That's good that like, you know, they've gotten older and they've seen the changes. Yeah, 
Well, and, and something, something that I never considered either until I started talking about this with people is, you know, hunters are some of the most avid conservationists out there because they're, they're, they have a vested interest in preserving the thing that they love to do or the thing that they rely on for their, for their livelihood or for, you know, to feed their families, which is not when, when I, this maybe is a bias of mine showing when I think of hunters, I don't think of them being avid conservationists, but it makes sense when you break it down. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Most of the, most of the people I know that hunt and fish are, are concerned about the resource and want to continue doing what they love. Yeah. So I've been aware of the issues with the warming and the rising of the ocean and melting of glaciers for a long time. Obviously, you know, I grew up here seeing those things. Um, but while I was researching this show, I read about other climate concerns that are impacting streams and rivers in Alaska, specifically like the drying up of wetlands, which is how our rivers are filtered and how a lot of the nutrients are provided for the things that live in the rivers, as well as um, the introduction of invasive species. So what are some of the climate related changing changes to fishing and hunting that you've noticed over your years of working and recreating in Alaska? Well, there's definitely concerns about like the stream warming and temp and the, you know, because of the re re longer um, seasons, there's less snowpack, there's le it melts sooner, the streams are lower, they're warmer. So it's, it's very concerning, um, you know, and I mentioned king salmon, like the, the lack of them now, uh, you know, and there's a lot of reasons that could be that beyond climate change, you know, there's ocean carrying capacity because the hatcheries, there's interception by high seas drift nets, but the, also the intertidal zones are warming and they're, you know, that's where the fish, when they migrate out, hang out. And that's, you know, really detrimental to them. So, you know, it's, it's really obvious. And I also, I started keeping track of when the ice, I keep track of all my fishing stuff when I come in and keep a log, but for, I kept track of when the ice was going out on lakes I've got a pond behind my house and it coincides with the lowland lakes. And for 20 years, it was May 13th. That was when the ice went out. Um, you know, and it's the last 10 years have been radically different. Um, one year it was a month early. Wow. And freeze up was a month late. So you can imagine that long warming period, you know, um, you know, that's shrinking wetlands, it's warming the water where fish spawn. So it's very concerning. And the other, the other thing that I've been interested in is how um, not, you know, water, water, fish and water is important, but also how the, um, this impacts the vegetation that animals who rely on that, who, the animals that we hunt rely on that to eat. Um, and so it just kind of becomes this big, this big cycle that feels overwhelming to think about. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it, it is. You can do what you do what you can. So that's why a lot of us have turned to like, you know, this, we can't maybe do something about ocean acidification on a big scale, but we can do things about like the streams. We can, um, you know, advocate for larger buffers of along stream banks. You know, you need to have that, that riparian habitat needs to be in shape. We can work towards that we can do restoration projects on streams. We can, there's a lot we can do. So that's always a, you know, we need to look at what we can do. Yeah. 
has how have you noticed um, ways that this this thing these things have um, impacted the things that you do in the outdoors? Are, do you, you do you guide for fishing? No, no, no you just are fishing for okay for fun. Yeah, yeah. And I, I take people out once in a while, and I work. I do a fly fishing class for the university, and okay. And so I've worked with guides doing things, doing a lot of stuff. I like fishing too much to be a guide. Yeah. So, <laughs> so have these changed, I guess, have these, have, you know, the ice on the lakes and the changes to the streams, the drying up the wetlands, you know, invasive, invasive species, fewer king salmon. How has that changed how you, how you participate in, in these activities? Well, huge. Cause I haven't king, I used to love king salmon fishing. Um, you know, and Mondays was drift only, um, no guides on the Kenai. I used to just, man, I was out every Monday um, and I haven't done that in seven or years or so because the numbers are down. Um, I just don't feel right doing it um, if it is open. And a lot of times it's open just for catch and release or last year it was closed completely. Um, so that is a huge impact because that was just something just I love doing and it wasn't that long ago my nephew's 28 and he would I remember when he was 12 or 13 and he came up he caught an 80 pounder and a 50 pounder in one day and you know nowadays a 50 pounder people go oh wow you know it's amazing so that's just that's pretty sad for me yeah has this changed have you had to find other activities to sort of fill that void have you have you branched out to other things that you love or Oh, there's still plenty of good fishing around. The trouts, trout are doing really well. Red salmon, you know, are, are in such high numbers. You can, although I just catch those for meat, but uh, big trout fishermen and trout populations are still doing well, thank goodness. Although, you know, like the streams on the lower peninsula um, have been warming quite a bit. Cook and let keepers done studies in the last 20 years have been doing temperature you know, looking at stream temperatures down there and they're warming up and, you know, there's, I've noticed the steelhead, it's anecdotal because there's not a weir or anything counting, but I think those of us that have fished steelhead a lot for 20 years um, have noticed a decrease in the, in the steelhead the last few years. And so steelhead were on the verge of actually quite a while ago because people were catching them and keeping them and there weren't that many were on the verge of collapse on those streams and they changed the rules um, to make it catch and release and the, the populations rebounded. But in the last few years, they've been down and I can't say for sure it's climate change, but you know, yeah. warming temperatures. Well, and I think, I think you, I think your perspective and people like you who spend a lot of time outside in these specific environments, I think your observations are incredibly important. And I think it is, it's a valuable, it's a valuable tool because it's hard to get studies funded. It's hard, you know, it's hard to do, to do the, the hard research to prove that these are things that are a problem. And it's nice to have people who, who notice these changes as well, because I think that just brings, helps to bring more awareness to the, to the issues that we're facing. Um, how do you think that we can better balance recreating in outdoor spaces that we love while minimizing our impact on them so they continue to be there for us and remain productive? Well, I guess, you know, keeping riparian habitat 
intact, you know, and having buffer zones and all of us advocating for that, you know, you can't be selfish. You, we all need, we're all in this together and we need to work. Um, restoration projects, there's not as many in Alaska as like the lower 48, but there's places where fish passage has been blocked. We can work on that. Um, we can do things in our own lives, you know, just, you know, I've put in solar panels, you know, uh, we can try to cut down our our use of fossil fuels. Um, so there's a lot of things we can do as individuals. Um, and I think, and, and, and education is huge. Let's, you know, get our kids out. You know, I think getting kids out first um, away from their, their phones and their, you know, game, video gaming and getting them out and enjoying the wilderness. So then they want to protect it and, and have it for, for themselves and their kids. I think we did a show uh, a couple of years ago about getting kids outside. So I'll make sure to um, add that to the show notes if anybody, because I do think that getting kids outside is a topic that is important, but also people struggle with it a little bit, especially the people that aren't, you know, that are new to Alaska. It's a little intimidating to get, <laughs> to get your kids outside here, depending on where you go. Um, certainly the events in 2020 helped get everybody outside a little bit more here. Um, but I, I think that that's another, another topic that is, yep. is important. And there are it programs is. in the state to help get kids into state parks and, and do all of those things. Yeah, there's a lot of good programs. I know like the Kenai Watershed Forum down here has a summer camp and it's all outdoor stuff and it's just, and they have scholarships in it. You know, it's not, it's quite, it's easy to do, you know. Yeah. So hopefully parents will get involved and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us today, Dave. Um, I really appreciate you being here and making time for this. All right, I appreciate it. That's all for today's show. Thank you to my guests, Tim Hinterberger, Toby Schroer, Rosie Brennan, and Dave Atchison. You can find more information about all of our guests today on the Outdoor Explorer page at alaskapublic.org. Thank you to our producer, Eric Bork, and from all the hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thank you for listening, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, The Man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.